Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Open Heart Conversations, a place to meet, discover, and learn about different spiritual traditions by exploring their teachings, rituals, and music. Brought to you by the United Palace of Spiritual Arts in New York City, an all-inclusive community that cultivates the expansion of consciousness and the power of imagination. Here now is Spiritual Director Reverend Heather Shea. Heather Shea, Spiritual Director and CEO at the United Palace of Spiritual Arts. Today's guest is Reverend Dr. Dale T. Irvin, President and Professor of World Christianity at New York Theological Seminary. Along with Reverend Arda Itez, this conversation will explore the history of Christianity and its relevance today. of the, the Christianity of Jesus? Uh, um, Christi- the, the Christian movement started as a reform movement inside Judaism around a charismatic figure named Jesus of Nazareth. Within two decades, within, within 40 years, 50 years of his death, it had gone through an enormous shift from the Jesus movement to the church. Um, Jesus came preaching a reform and a, and, a, and a radical vision of a of a community of people who had been left outside. Um, what emerged was something called the church. This church that emerged was was quite at odds with much of that Jesus himself had preached, and you know that by just reading the the pages of the New Testament. Um, women were in leadership around Jesus's movement. It was a women-centered movement. Uh, Mary Magdalene played an, an extraordinarily important role in that early leadership. Um, she gets more or less written out of the story. They couldn't write out Mary, his mother, but they found ways to marginalize her. Um, and Protestants even went further to reduce her almost entirely from our, from our working theology scripts. Um, Jesus came as a reformer within Israel. Within 100 years of his death, the movement was predominantly Gentile. And in many cases, um, in, in most of those expressions, became supersessionist in which it actually became anti-Jewish. I don't think you can say Jesus was anti-Jewish. He was Jewish. He was a Galilean. Um, so you see this really rapid transformation from a Jesus movement to an early church that was led by 12 men, um, or at least symbolically headed by 12 men. What they couldn't do, they couldn't erase the memory of Jesus, which was at the center of it. 
And that has always been the, the transforming hope of Christianity. Almost every renewal movement goes back and starts by reading the Gospels and saying, wow, this is what Jesus said. This isn't how we're living. If this is what he said, this is what we ought to be doing. And out of that come almost every time the renewal movement. So it's a, it's a kind of an ongoing uh, uh, struggle inside the text of the New Testament itself between what Jesus was talking about and the churches that emerged. I would start by saying it was women who witnessed and brought the message. And you see that in the pages of the first four books. It was women who came. The men were in hiding. The women were the ones who surrounded him. Um, I think in some ways the women rebirthed him as his mother had birthed him and as women collectively nursed him as a child that this collective, this community of women rebirthed him with their stories. I like to say that it was the, the tomb became a new womb. And whether he was physically resurrected, I don't think really matters. Whether it was a body, I think what really matters is that the witness of the women, the, the, his compelling story was given new life and given new expression. Um, looking back at him, they could not see that this person who they now knew was anything other than God's expression to them. And it reshaped how they thought about God. So our standard language is that Jesus did as God was. That somehow what Jesus was doing revealed who God was through what he was doing. Through the power of the resurrection then really made it clear that this was something that was trans-historical. Trans um, so reading back into his life, it becomes then possible to say, well... Yeah, he was in some sense an incarnation of the divine, the power of the divine, the word, the word made flesh, which doesn't mean that the person who was born from Mary was a, was a god, but rather that somehow God was in this person's life, working from the end backwards. What we do know is that women, there, there, there were powerful women around Jesus. He was really a, 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 a women-centered movement. When Jesus says you can't get into the kingdom of heaven without being like a child, mm -hmm. he basically is saying you can't be a male. You have to go back and become a pre... Nobody gets in here with masculine patriarchal identities. He tells his followers when he's giving them a, a, a roles they can play, he says, call no one father here on earth. You could be mother, brothers, and sisters, but you don't have any father here on earth. It really is a, a radical critique of patriarchy. Um, Jesus is very clear about reaching the outsiders, there's a whole lot of us who think that when he sent people out two by two, he was sending the male and female with a new kind of relationship of equality between men and women. That's where Mary ends up in the book of uh, Thomas, which is as old as the book of Mark. Um, Jesus tells Peter, look, I'm making her equal with you. And Peter gets bent out of shape and doesn't like it. And Jesus says, I've elevated her so that men and women are equal in this movement. And what have you learned about him that has surprised you? Or nourishes you? Um, the extraordinary openness that Jesus has to outsiders through his own life and his willingness to be challenged and to learn. Um, a Syrophoenician woman who he is um, very uh, uh, chauvinistic to and says he won't heal her because he's only that salvation belongs to the house of Israel. And don't give the, the children, don't give the, the, the bread to the dogs. And she says, well, even the, it belongs to the children. And she says, well, even the dogs eat off the, the crumbs that fall on the floor. And Jesus, and it's really clear in the text, Jesus is shocked by this. And he says, this just arrests him. And he says, I haven't found faith like this in all of Israel. Um, he's learning. He's somebody who's open. He's somebody who's receptive. He's someone who is, 
is taking in others. And I think that, for me, is really an, uh, um, the heart of, of this Christianity. It's not sending, it's receiving. It's taking in. It's being open to what, God, what the creation has given us and realizing that Christ grows in us by this receptive process. From the very first days, Christian, the Christian movement has always struggled with the question of whether it's an institution or a movement. Uh, the institutionalization forms are there early on. You, you can't have a movement sustain over generations without some kind of institutional form. But it becomes only institutionalized, it loses that movement. And I think we're really living through a time where we're rehearing this realization that it's a movement first, that the institution was serving the movement, not the other way around. Um, that institutionalist process got distorted with the conversion of the Roman Empire and with the imperial church in, in both its eastern and western forms. Uh, that really distorted something in it. In it, in it um, Christianity, the, the, the dynamic had to become something which went underground and always is being expressed, but often under margins and places where you don't expect to, where it's, where it's, it's not being regulated. If there was one thing that you could change in people's understanding of Christianity? For me, Christianity lives in two forms. One of them is its dogmatic form, and the other one is its contemplative, prophetic, engaged, active form. And the dogmatic form, if I would really would help people understand, was really there to protect worship. The, the earliest Christians understood that they encountered God through worship. That there was a, you could encounter God anywhere, but the collective practice of liturgy, a work they did, was a place where they really experienced the Spirit. That worship nurtured a living community. It gave them something, but in order to protect it, they developed dogmas, become boundaries. They become the, the things that regulate what you can say and can't say. It doesn't regulate prayer life. It doesn't regulate contemplation. It should inform it. And, and if it was one thing, it would be to understand that as important as dogmas are, they really are there for something else. And at the end, it's not talking about God, but it really is talking to God. That is the, 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 the life of this movement. Um, the contemplation, Richard Rohr calls it a, an alternative orthodoxy. The movement of contemplation isn't just private and it, isn't, it is collective. It's a, it's a spirituality. It's what the mystics practice. It is going deep. It, is, it has its own forms of articulation and expression, but it doesn't displace worship. It comes back to the point where there is a gathering of people who together do something collectively which they don't do on their own individually. So for the person who doesn't know anything about Christianity but wants to learn about Jesus and his teachings, the real teachings of Jesus Christ, yeah. what yeah. reading would you recommend? Yeah. Um, the book of Mark. Um, Matthew, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus' own first sermon in Luke, Luke 4. Um, the important thing I think that really transforms the movement is the, the, the disciples experience the resurrection after his death. It's a surprising twist at the end of the story, and it's that resurrection which shapes their memory and, and, and everything that comes after it. Um, that experience frees Jesus from his historical identity and makes him a cosmic figure so that the resurrected Christ has always been something seen larger more encompassing so whatever Jesus had to say in his own times his continued presence through the through the spirit through a resurrected cosmic um, um, force becomes something which drives then beyond just what his original teachings were Do you... 
road I want to cross over into campground Deep river My home is over Jordan Deep river Worship is changing. It's not going away. And people are worshiping in smaller numbers, and they're doing it in different ways. 
Um, there's a church here in New York City, a Father's Heart Church, which is one of the first Pentecostal churches in North America. It's the first Russian-speaking uh, um, Pentecostal church here in North America and possibly in the world. They've transformed themselves from being a church into being a feeding mission. And my, the Father's Heart has a small group of people who say, our mission is to feed homeless people. That's who we are. Um, that becomes their worship, and I think that's really a, a, an important insight. An awful lot of us are finding the worship experience through helping with the poor, with serving people, with, with being engaged in a project, a cause, of following the, uh, the workers' rights movements. Or, or being, um, it doesn't diminish the movement. It actually helps us see that there's more ways in which we worship than just simply going in and being entertained in a megachurch. Um, Benedict introduced work as part of the discipline of the community, the rule of the community, and was asked by another monastic leader one time, why do your followers work and not prayer, pray all day? And Benedict's answer was, work is prayer. Um, to be able to work, to feed the hungry, to be able to work in the world, that is prayer. Science and spirituality in Christianity were connected but at some point they got disconnected. Could you speak on that sure. a little bit? Um, I've been part of a project at the Center of Theological Inquiry for the last couple of years. That was a dialogue. Uh, basically, uh, NASA funded a project with 12 theologians who were looking at the implications, not just for Christianity, but for, for the world's religious traditions, uh, the implications, not if but when NASA discovers DNA in other parts of the universe off of Earth. They're right now looking at uh, the moon off of Jupiter, the moons around Saturn, and are expected all the conditions are there that creates DNA and expect to find DNA. Um, one of the first sessions, the astrobiologists and the theologians were sitting face to face, and the astrobiologists were very skeptical, I will be honest with you, several of them were very skeptical, and one of the people at the table said, why don't you tell us what you think we're, we're talking about when we talk about God? They did, and the, and, the, and the theologian said, that's a Newtonian 18th century notion of God. That's not how theologians work with this idea anymore. So really much more conversation around places for conversation, for joint inquiry, if we could get beyond some of the ideological barriers, which are really holdovers from an earlier era in which religion was, was trying to suppress science. Um, we aren't trying to suppress it. Some are. Some are. I, I understand that. But the vast majority, starting with the Pope himself, embrace evolution, talk about the need for dialogue, and realize that we're really working at two ways of getting up the mountain, but as uh, Owen Ginrich from Harvard, the astrophysicist from Harvard once said, the astrophysicist finally got to the top of the mountain and found the theologians were already up there. Um, <laughs> the more I hear the astrobiologists talk, the more I hear the, 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 the physicists talk, the deeper I realize that they're getting into theology. They're talking about things that, that, that bring you into the mystery. And the mystery of what happened in the Big Bang is as much the mystery as I talk about when I talk about the mystery of who God is. So talk to me about Christ consciousness. Um, 
However, Jesus grew into this notion that he was called to go and, and, and confront Rome and take on some kind of messianic identity, I don't think he was prepared for what happened afterwards. I think the resurrection was as much a shock to Jesus and much a surprise as it was to his disciples. That is in the book of Hebrews, by the way, which says that God was teaching Jesus something on the cross and that he had to learn something and his learning was, was actually the experience itself. Whatever the, the risen Christ is, whether you believe it's a body, or a flesh, raised in the flesh, or however you understand that, it's clear that it's, it's linked with a consciousness of something which was more, more than just being a Galilean, more to the ends of the earth, a, a consciousness which was open to reception of new cultures, new identities. Um, it's in the, in the, the technical theological language we would use is to say that this was that Jesus didn't raise himself, he was raised by the Spirit, and this is the work of the Spirit, which is now bringing cosmic dimensions into expression through his life and in his person. The, um, the, 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 the cosmic dimension of this consciousness is a... Um, um, something which reaches beyond what would be just uh, a one human being, one history, into areas of creation itself, into areas of other, other dimensions in the cosmos. Um, in our conversation with the NASA scientist, one of them were talking about finding, they, they kept talking about finding DNA. And at one point, in the conversation, I realized that this really was the major difference between those of us who were theologians in the room and those who were scientists. Scientists were, were working on the notion that life is a function of DNA, but the theologians were working on the, function, on the notion that DNA is itself a function of life, that the whole cosmos is alive, that there's an energy in the universe which is life, and life gave rise to being, and the DNA is one expression of it, but that full consciousness of life, I would call the cosmic consciousness, that's the Christ consciousness. Or the cosmic Christ. Or the that's cosmic Christ, yeah. The book, of, uh, the, the book of John calls it the Logos. With Plato, it mm -hmm. takes a word out of Plato and calls it the Logos. Um, in West Africa, it's a She. Um, the, the new Chinese... Um, translation of John 1 says, in the beginning was the Tao, and the Tao was God, and the Tao was with God. Uh, the Burmese translation of the Bible says that in the beginning was the Dharma, and the Dharma was God, and the Dharma was with God, drawing on Buddhist concepts. It's, it's all the, it, our world religious spiritual traditions expre express this this cosmic, cosmic consciousness. Consciousness, yeah. So Krishna consciousness, Buddha yeah. mind, yeah. you know, um, Christ consciousness, yeah. we're all really talking yeah. about the yeah. same thing. Yeah. And I think we're growing into the same thing and we're talking about the same thing without reducing everything to being just one. Mm -hmm. um, I think we have, I, I, I love Mark Heim's view. Mark Heim has argued in, in several of his books, he's a theologian from Yale now, but he's argued in several of his books that Christianity reduced the end of life to one thing in the modern era, but in fact, back in the time of, of, of Dante, you have a much more pluralistic, a much more complex eternity with heaven and places to go. and 
Mark says each religion has its own end, and we need to recognize the integrity of those ends and make room for them that our end doesn't become the only end there is, that there are places and, and there, are, there are ways in which we realize these ends through our various faith traditions without giving up the sense that my end is important or my end has integrity and is the one I'm heading towards. Um, so I was really uh, wanting to delve a little deeper into this idea of the, um, almost the reincarnated uh, spirit of Christ or the revival or the reiteration of it. Um, in our time today, you mentioned that there's a lot going on around the world. What, um, what would you say is happening in American culture to, to reflect this, this like re-embodiment or re, like just where this, maybe like a revival, where do you see it happening? Just So when I look across North America, United States, um, First of all, I see an extraordinary diversity um, of all of the expressions of Christianity and of Christian faith. As I said, just here in New York City, the enormous diverse cultures and, and traditions that are reflected here. Um, we have, as a part of our dominant culture from the days of Puritanism, struggled between an idealism and a kind of consumer consumption um, pursuit of happiness, that our Declaration of Independence sort of gives up life, liberty, fraternity, and says life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And pursuit of happiness was precisely what the Puritans were concerned about and trying to, trying to tone down. Um, in that place, we end up as a kind of a, of a, um, a bipolar, bipolarity of our culture where we're driven on the one hand to extraordinary acts of altruism and extraordinary acts of, of giving. You see this in people like Dorothy Day. And on the other side is this extraordinary explosion of emergent churches, new kinds of prophetic movements, um, things like Richard Rohr Center, um, others that are really revitalizing and they're re-energizing people in unexpected ways. Um, it's that other living tradition of faith in small numbers and emergent churches and house communities and gatherings in places where people really are going deeper and exploring. I think that's where the, that, that we're seeing the revitalization happening. I'm Reverend Heather Schoen, and we'll be back more from Reverend Dale Irvin in just a minute on Open Heart Conversations from the United Palace Spiritual Arts. Please stay tuned. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. As Unity Online Radio continues to expand its programming and outreach around the world, we depend on the generosity of listeners like you. If you enjoy the programming, please make your donation today by going to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate. 
Thank you for your support. Here's a Unity Mindful Moment with Catherine Ponder, taken from a classic talk called The Prosperous Truth, recorded at Unity of Austin in 1991. God is extravagant supply. Get that, extravagant. God is extravagant supply. He brings forth the best robe. He spreads the banquet table, as we saw last night, with good things on which we may feast. He overflows our cup. He opens the windows of heaven and pours out a blessing. And then this is what that Unity Correspondence Course said. Why are you satisfied with such meager living when you may have so much? To find out more about Unity teachings, visit unity.org. Unity is proud to announce the first-ever New Thought Walden Awards, honoring 27 leaders who are helping to change the world. Some are well-known, but most are unsung heroes. They care about spirituality, healing, interfaith understanding, caring for the earth, and social activism. Read about them in the September-October edition of Unity Magazine, or go online to waldenawards.com. Congratulations to all. Give someone you love the gift of inspiration with a subscription to Unity Magazine. Each issue has interesting articles and compelling interviews from some of today's most prominent spiritual thought leaders. Explore new ideas in health, science, spirituality, and a lot more. Send gifts to your family and friends and save $7 off the subscription rate. Get a one-year subscription for just $14.95. This offer ends on December 31st, so go to unity.org to find out more. Discover the wisdom of Charles Fillmore and other legendary Unity teachers with Reverend Bob Brock and Unity Classic Radio. Every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Central, Bob shares original radio transcripts from the Unity Archives with Truth students worldwide. Explore these timeless teachings and learn how to apply them to your life today. Listen live or on demand. You can also connect with Reverend Bob on his Unity in Action Facebook page. Tune in every Tuesday here on UnityOnlineRadio.org. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Open Heart Conversations from the United Palace of Spiritual Arts. I'm Reverend Heather Shea with our special guest, Reverend Dale T. Irvin. Christian, um, what is the Christian belief on reincarnation, life after death? Yeah. Um, in my long studies of Christian history, the, the place where you often went for doctrinal controversies and places to look was um, it councils and, and the kinds of canons and, and pronouncements they made. No Christian council ever condemned reincarnation. So it's, a, it's an option. It's a minor option. Uh, Origen in the early years believed in the pre-existence of souls, and there's some places where Origen, it looks like you could come back. He was condemned, but not for that belief, but because he said everybody gets in no matter what. Everybody goes back even if you don't want to. Um, Origen's universalism was what got him in trouble early on. There are places where you see echoes of it uh, in some of the mystics. You see returns. 
Typically, the Christian tradition has said that there is um, one pass at this life, and it's, been, it's part of the Abrahamic tradition. You get one pass, and then you go on to your end. But you don't stop coming back in the Spirit. And the way Christianity dealt with that was the doctrine of the communion, communion of saints and the, the active role the saints played in daily life. And so many places of the world, still, ancestors are those who have passed on before and don't necessarily come back, but they hang around. And the saints play that role. They hang around. They're with us. Uh, Whether it's in China, the ancestors, the ancestor traditions in Africa, Christianity made room for that with the saints coming back. But you can still, it's it's not unheard of that there are places in Christianity where there was belief that you, you reincarnated and had a chance to, not a chance, that you came back and relived a new life in the body. What does Christianity hold for the younger generations? Why? Why Christianity? What does it have? So the genius of Jesus, one of the areas that's a genius is that Jesus doesn't start a religion. He's a renewal movement inside Judaism. He doesn't have any new things to teach. He says he's very clear that he's adding nothing to the law and prophets. He doesn't even have his own grave. He has to borrow somebody else's grave. Christianity is the only, this is um, one of Laman Sane's great insights. He also teaches at Yale. Christianity is the only religion, major religion, we have with a teacher or a set of scriptures whose the, the language that the founder taught in, we do not have access to. And we don't know what he actually taught, that it was already translated, that Muhammad received the Quran in Arabic and it's in Arabic. Moses, for all we know, received it in Hebrew and the Ten Commandments are in Hebrew. Um, the Buddha taught in Pali and we have the Pali scriptures. Jesus spoke Aramaic, but his followers wrote his words in Greek. Sané argues that this is actually the, 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 the life of Christianity. It only lives when it's being translated. It only lives when it's finding new contextual form. Part of our problem is we hold on to older forms and don't allow these new ones to emerge. I started by talking about the explosion of Christianity globally. Um, those global forms are really revitalizing this movement, and they're doing so in ways that are surprising, that Jesus has become an African ancestor, that... Mm-hmm. The, um, the precursors of this, of course, were African-American Christianity, which, which 400 years ago, 300 years ago began that process. That has just exploded now across Africa with new forms of, of uh, contextualization, indigenization, a really embracing of African culture. Christianity did that in Europe in the 900s, 800s, 900s, 1000s, as it really absorbed the pre-Christian religions and took them in and simply made them part of its expression. We have a letter from Pope Gregory to the missionaries in working in England and said, don't tear down the Anglo-Saxon shrines. Just simply put Christian saints in them. They'll be going into the same shrines and worshiping those same god and goddesses, but they won't know it, that they've become Christian. <laughs> um, that's the remnants of Santa Claus. Those, we have the remnants of the Yule log and this, this northern European form of Christianity really was a revitalization of much in the way of the traditional Germanic religious experiences. Um, I think that's what's happening in places like Africa. It's certainly happening across India. Um, it's happening in Asia. You see Christianity really taking on Asian forms, becoming, um, becoming a, 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 a new kind of faith translated into those new places. We don't know what the next generation is going to be, but that's the process. Um, whatever it is, it will live on and become something new. 
Marianne Sawicki um, has a great line. She says that the, Jesus got up out of his tomb, rebirthed by the women's witness, that the tomb became a womb, but the men re-entombed him in their texts, mm. and that the, the whole life of this movement has been the risen Christ trying to escape the confinement that the theologians, that the church itself put. And as much as we needed a place to find him, the tomb, uh, he's not there. And as much as we encounter about him in the text, he finally isn't there. He's living out here in the world in front of us. Um, so the text becomes in some ways a kind of a marker of where you last saw him, but it becomes an invitation to go meet him in places where you don't think he necessarily would go because that's what the text tells us he did. presentation. My question is, where does morality, which is continuously transactional in this current environment, fall into the conversation? So the ancient world that Jesus lives in, the assumption is the smarter you are, the more virtue you will have. Virtue and philosophy were linked. Um, they got disconnected in our modern era, and we took wisdom and truth and separated it from the good and morality and ethics. So now we do uh, theology and ethics in two different classrooms. And morality then becomes something which gets downplayed or gets underplayed because it becomes expedient, because we're driven by expediency. Um, and if you can get away with it, then it's good. 
and it's an ends-driven um, game we end up playing in this modern era. Step back. Um, to be moral is to, be, to treat another human being. Aristotle says to be prudent is to treat yourself well. To be moral is to treat another human being well. That morality has to do with how we treat others. How do we handle others? Um, the Jewish philosopher, Emmanuel Levinas, says it really arises with the other who's not there. When I'm face-to-face, you're not going to get away with certain things. It's when you're absent. It's the third party. It's when somebody's not there. It's how do you deal with that? Um, and I think that's undergirding this whole renewal movement that Jesus is about. There were too many people who were left out of the moral equation of their own day. And they were regarded as being incapable of achieving morality because of who they were by life circumstances, by poverty. Um, and that Jesus really was about bringing a new kind of moral code, a moral dimension. He called it the, the inbreaking realm of God, the kingdom of God. But he said, it's not something you're going to. It's right here in your midst. And it's when you start treating people as, 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 as they should be, as human beings who bear the divine imago Dei, the divine image of God. Um, to bear the image of God in the other then means to treat constantly the other as someone who is godly, someone who is divine. Um, I think that needs to be reintegrated into our theological life, into our public life, certainly in our um, religious experience, expressions that are religious institutions to put this back on a question that it really does matter how we treat each other um, and that that's, that's as much as an important aspect of whether we have the right beliefs about who God is. You know, I'm just wondering if the conversation that is so wonderfully sensible here has any real-world implication when the church in yeah. its all its manifestations... Yeah. I hear it. I think there are places where it's happening, but aren't necessarily going to be the ones that we always see. And it's, and it's happening in ways and places where if we're intentional and look for them, we'll find them. And the biggest question is not whether it's happening out there, but are we participating in it? Are we actually helping it? Um, you know, there's a great old cartoon that somebody gets to heaven and says to God, you know, why, did you, why didn't you change something? And God says, why didn't you change it? Uh, it's what I put you there on earth to do. She didn't say it. Uh, we all know that, but it's attributed to Teresa of Avila that God has no hands but ours, no feet but ours, that, that the divine presence on earth is our work. So, and so if we're trying to say, where is it going on? The next question is, where am I participating in this, this new morality, this new transforming work, which is there. Um, um, it's just not always well known and always seen. Uh, you talked about uh, reincarnation, and um, you even talked about the resurrection. I wanted you to uh, talk about something that uh, Jesus teaches and in, in promises. And uh, a lot of times I feel like we don't immerse ourselves enough into the idea of eternal life mm -hmm. and the idea of mm -hmm. when it begins <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and yeah. When it ends, <laughs> because That's you said, great you, yeah, because you said that whole, yeah. it's yeah. stated or implied that we have one pass at life. Yeah. But nevertheless, yeah. in the tenets of Jesus is this idea of being guaranteed mm -hmm. eternal life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so in that respect, mm -hmm. that seems to be two conflicting 
sentiments. Right, right. right. That's a good question. So Jesus uses the word eternal life, but the word in Greek is actually a new age, aeon. It's this age and an age to come. There's an age to come. Um, Jesus calls that the Basileia to Theo, the, the, the kingdom of God. I don't like the word kingdom. My, my uh, former, the, the late Otto, um, um, Otto Maria Sassi Diaz dropped the G in English and called it the kingdom of God and just put a hyphen in there. So I like the kingdom of God. Jesus was talking about this kingdom of God, which he says is breaking in now. Um, Christians struggled early on with the promise that he was going to come back quickly and then he didn't show up. And, and so you start to see this in the pages of the New Testament in Paul. Some have fallen asleep. Um, we're, we're waiting. We're waiting for him to come back. The, the early Christian experience was not a belief in a soul going back to heaven. Paul doesn't believe that the soul goes to heaven when it dies, that it becomes disembodied from the, from the, from the material body. That's a Greek notion, a dualism, of, a Platonic notion of soul and body being two separate things, got joined together for a while here on earth, Bodies die, souls go back to heaven. Early Christians believe adamantly that there's no disembodiment of a soul. And so they're holding for the resurrection of the dead. What they believe happens, says, according to Paul, what Paul teaches is that when a person physically dies, they're held in the body of Christ, the resurrected body of Christ, until the time of their own resurrection, which is to come. And so that's why he says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You're in, the, you're in Christ's body, which is why Christians kept their dead nearby and buried them in the churchyard so that you had the presence of people who were part of this community still with you in, 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 in a place of expectation and hope. It's also why they thought, and, and it's also where relics came from. The understanding was that if you moved, you took a part of your mother's body with you so that in the resurrection, Christ would put her back together and you'd be joined. And that's where you ended up taking thumbs and pieces of a body and making relics out of them because this joined people over great distances into one body. I know it sounds gruesome, but it's a very powerful understanding of embodiment. And I think that was... That hope of eternal life was an embodiment of transformation that, the, that the, the perishable becomes imperishable. So it really was not about quantity. It was more about quality. It wasn't just endless life that goes on forever. It was a quality of experience of being that really gave this power. And for Jesus, it doesn't start when you die. It starts right now, the way you treat others, the way you're living. This is the kingdom of God right here. It's beginning uh, now, what happens at the end is up to God to decide. The, the eternal life and where the, where the souls become, that's all we're, we know that, that we trust God with that one. Um, but I think it's the quality, not the quantity, that just it's going to be endless, endless time. It's going to be something more qualitative. I think that's the, the, new, the, the, the piece Jesus was trying to teach. Yeah, so the question about the, the ends that I talked about earlier, the ends of a religion, the ends of our own faith tradition, um, those, those are the personal ends that we all find in this tradition. What happens when I die? Then there's the question of the great ends. What's going to happen at the end of history? Um, we're coming, many theorists, this is one of the things we're talking about in science, that we're coming, we realize faster than we want to come to the end. We're coming to the end of something which we now call the Anthropocene, the age of human domination. 
And given the climate study change, given the climate change study that just came out this week from the White House, it might be here quicker than we realize. Um, we really are coming to the end of something. Is that end going to be Christ's return? Back in his systematic theology in volume three, Paul Tillich said we could drop nuclear weapons and destroy the whole human race, and that isn't the end God chooses, and that won't bring about the eschaton. That won't bring about the, the, the second come. Christ won't come back just because we nuke each other. Um, that whole question about what the end of history is and what it looks like and how does, what, what, what will be the final judgment, those are questions I think that really loom not down the road but inside each one of our lives. And in that sense, the second coming really is about presence. It's not so much about waiting for Jesus to pop up out of the sky some, some afternoon and come back and, and, and clean things up and end the history as, as the books, the, what are the, 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 the series um, uh, left Behind, the Left Behind series. Uh, I couldn't think of the name of it. Um, rather, it's about the, the presence of constant realization that Christ continues to come back um, in the Eucharist, in Mass each week, in people's lives. Every time you feed the homeless, you're feeding Christ. You're, when you call upon people in prison, in a sense, he's coming back in that presence. It's that sense of coming back that I think is important. Having said that, Christianity does teach that Jesus will return at some point and be visibly manifested. Islam teaches the same. Uh, in Islam, Jesus is the Messiah, and he will come in both branches of Islam. And so when I'm doing Christian Muslim presentations for groups, I always start with my friend uh, who's a, 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 an imam saying, he's Muslim, I'm Christian. I think more Muslims believe in the literal return of Jesus than Christians do on the face of the earth. We're all waiting for the Christ, for the Messiah to come back. Uh, that makes 55% of the world's population technically. The question we don't know is whether he's God or not. So that'll be the first question that we ask him. You know, did, did you say you were God? Are you God or not? I mean, but the presence of expectation of an end coming for final judgment, um, we share that with Islam. And that's a deep part of that tradition. However it manifests itself in our spirituality, it kind of hangs out there. Um, we do expect someday to see him. Yeah. Um, you said a few things. So this is maybe a personal question, but I never heard that um, scripture about being like a child and that being everyone but a man, um, or God when He said to be like have faith as the child, yes, and that yes. being about everything but yes. a man, like yes. sister. Yes. Um, so I'd love for you to speak on your perspective of being a white male who um, is a theologian who. To me, it doesn't matter what you look like, you're speaking truth. Um, but what that means in this day when so many people are rising against patriarchy and figures who look as yourself, yeah. first part. Second part, um, but also being about that idea of womb and mother and woman. I'm a young mother, like I have a young child and I'm pregnant right now. And my question is, in church the other day, my daughter was in choir practice and the choir director, who's a woman, said, someone said, well, who's God? And she said, well, God is Jesus' daddy or Jesus' father. And my daughter looked at me and was like, that doesn't sound like what you were telling me. Like, that does, it, but still, this, to attach that same idea of, like, even the women 
Our, like, it's a father, it's a man, it's a, you know. And so I'm, I have a daughter and I'm pregnant with another girl and this idea of raising them in the Christian faith in the way that I'm coming to understand it and when they hear it out of others' mouths, how would you interpret or explain that? Yeah. Um, I'll do the first part. I, the, for me, being a white male is who God made me to be. I didn't choose this. It's given to me. It's a gift. I need to embrace it, and I need to embrace it with all of the contradictions and all the problematics of white privilege that goes with it and patriarchal privilege. So for me, it's learning how do you live responsibly and how do you um, do so in ways that really overcomes the power dynamic and becomes more of a, of a not power over, but power with. How do you empower others with your life and with your work in a way that doesn't pretend you're anything other than a white male living in a patriarchal world? Um, get up and, and that's who I am. So um, I don't see it so much as a contradiction as, as a call to become and, and join and be participant with something that's bigger than me uh, and try to live that out. I don't pretend that I do it well. Um, and it's wonderful for me to have people who call me up um, my colleague, Vanessa Brown, who is um, um, the, the, the pastor of the Rivers Church here, has no problem in saying, there goes your whiteness again. There goes your patriarchy again. You know, you've got to learn. Oh, yeah. Good. I need people to help call that out because I, I can't see it. You know, it's, it's, it's who I am. Um, the, the other part of the question was around women. When, when, the, when, when Jesus... Jesus, I think, himself, I think, I think it's fair to say that Jesus himself chose to use the language of Father as an alternative to using a proper name for God. Um, Aramaic Abba doesn't mean Daddy. It's not a, it simply means Father. It's the, it becomes in Greek the Patria, but it's Abba. It's Aramaic for, for Father. I think Jesus was trying to say something to his followers that the alternative that was already emerging on the rabbis was to call God, Lord, Adonai. And he uses the language of Mar in Aramaic to talk about that, but, but he's called the Lord, but that it comes to the, his followers called Jesus. Jesus is trying to get something different across. And I think what he was trying to get across was that this, re, this, this fundamental notion of God is relational and not transactional. That you can't, you don't get in by doing things. You don't get in by worship. You don't get in by, you don't get into the relationship. You only get into it through love. And I think that's where Richard Rohr gets it exactly right. Um, unfortunately, he chose a word that later became ideological. It became, it became an idol for some of his followers. And so to call God Father intended a gender. There's no gendering intended by Jesus. It's relational. There's plenty of early Christian documents that keep saying God doesn't have a gender. God is not gendered. This language was relational. Being called Father had to do much with adoption because in the Greco-Roman world, a child had a natural mother, but a father had to claim the child legally. If the father said, that's not my child, the child was dispossessed. If there was legal, if there was property involved. So you see some of those and you say, okay, I understand where, why this became such a language. Having said that, there's plenty of places in the scriptures, in the early tradition, in recent in theology through the centuries, where God is being figured as female form, God is mother. You can't speak Hebrew and not call the spirit ruach, which is female. Um, all kinds of wonderful imagery, which I think gets suppressed because it challenges that patriarchy, which did become part of the church. Um, and so it's, it's Julian Norwich, uh, Jesus, our mother. 
Um, the, four, the third council of Toledo from 589 speaks about the, the, the word being born from the womb of the father. Um, they conceptualize the father having a womb because Jesus was begotten of the father. Um, you have all of these kinds of fluid gender imagery and even around Jesus, some wonderful material from the Middle Ages of Jesus as mother, uh, Jesus as a woman. Carol Byram has done some wonderful work on that. So whatever the risen Christ is, it's not a gendered reality. That's very clear in Basel of Caesarea who says there is no gender in the resurrection. We will become both. Um, that the fullness of the image of God will be restored to all human beings and all human beings will be transgendered. Now that's not... 1989. That's three. That's not 2018. That's um, that's back in uh, 381. So um, there are those places I think that we can go back to and just to allow them to speak. You've been listening to Open Heart Conversations, exclusive dialogues and musical interludes with teachers and performers from spiritual traditions around the world, recorded at the United Palace of Spiritual Arts in New York City. To find out what's happening at the United Palace or to attend an event please visit unitedpalace.org. Open your heart, expand your mind, change the world, and join us next month. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today.